With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the April 2021 edition of Outward. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward. And I have a ruling from the Queer Council to deliver. <gasps> yes, very important. Which is that while regular daffodils are exempt from identity politics, those ones with the insane, gaudy orange centers are officially gay. <laughs> it's honestly far, far too much, and we love you for it. Thank you, orange daffodils. <laughs> no, I've always wondered why I was attracted to those daffodils. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm now you know. <laughs> I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and because I preach the gospel of Lil Nas X, I'll be spending the last few weeks of my post-vaccination life practicing the lap dance that I'll use to seduce (laughs) and murder Satan himself. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I'm Ramon Alam. I am a co-host of this show and of Slate's Working, and I have very little to say right now because I feel like I am on some kind of drug related to seasonal allergy, although I'm actually not taking, I'm not taking a drug, which might mitigate these particular symptoms, (laughs) but it feels like I'm looking at everything through a glass wall at the moment. I feel absolutely crazy, Um, but this too will pass. I am looking forward to getting outside, and like Christina said, post-vax life is on its way, and I'm... I don't know. I feel it's like it's almost precipitated like a break, psychic break with the way I feel of gratitude and just sort of like the overwhelming feeling of what lies yeah. ahead for all of us. I'm mm-hmm. so excited. Same. Yeah. My uh, gay ass might have teared up a little bit when I was in line to get mine uh, the other yeah. day. So, so. I think that's a, um. yeah, I think that's a really natural <laughs> response that, you know, uh, you know, Brian, you and I both live in New York City. So, of course, when you go yeah. do anything in New York City, you are part of such a like astonishing cross section of people. You know, mm-hmm. my husband and I, like our gay asses, went out to this like vaccine site close to the airport, which is sort of like mm-hmm. a working class part of Brooklyn. All different kinds of people, including us, you know, I mean, it was really just one of those things. It's like when you go to vote Mm -hmm. and you just see like the kinds of people Mm -hmm. you actually live among and you think like, oh, my God, what a great experiment New York City is. Like what a great experiment American urban life is. Um, But maybe that's the side effect of the vaccine. Delirium. (laughs) (laughs) Underreported. Very true. All right, on this month's program, we are taking a sapphic turn and spending the entire hour on lesbians. Why? why because not? women identify <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> why not? Why not is the correct yeah. Why not? But also because women identified women are obviously the best of us and they don't get enough attention or credit for it. So to correct that t- today, we'll first talk with the author Diana Suhami about her fantastic new book, No Modernism Without Lesbians, which argues that the new ways of seeing and saying that emerged in the arts and letters in the early 20th century would not have been possible without the women who variously invented 
advanced and supported them. Then we'll tightly lace our corsets <laughs> and gaze longingly upon the lesbian period drama recently mocked by Saturday Night Live. Why do so many recent movie depictions of lesbian life take place in a windswept, sparsely furnished past where glance choreography is the only form of communication? We're going to try to find out. Um, And as always, we'll wrap up with updates to the gay agenda. But first, it's time for Pride and Provocations, the moment in the show where we look at the queer news and share which kind of way it is making us feel. Ruman and Christina, I am sensing a little mm. bit of tension on the Zoom, so why don't you guys start us off? Oh, Ruman. well, I dispute your characterization <laughs> of our of Christina's and my differing perspectives on this particular <laughs> news, but um, I was going to say that I feel, or I felt, the day that it happened, proud of the Bachelor Colton Underwood coming out on Good Morning America. I think I simultaneously felt provoked by the easy, ungenerous responses to Mm. a young man coming out in a really public fashion. I don't know anything about reality television. I don't know anything about who this young guy is. But I do think that if you can watch this saga unfold and not feel a sadness for this person and what he has had to do to himself to this point in his life, and then a happiness that he is sort of leaving that behind him then I think maybe you should look inside and ask yourself why. Mm. Um, My friend Dan Daddario wrote a review for Variety um, where he talked about the interview between Colton Underwood and uh, Robin Roberts. Dan wrote, quote, True transparency across our culture means learning that people one might never have expected to be gay are, up to and including former bachelors. Maybe that will make young people see how much support is out there if they come out and make their peers see that no one knows exactly what is in the heart of another person. Christina, fair, challenge me. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. I guess I would dispute the idea that he had to do anything yeah. that he's done up until sure. this point. You know, I, I obviously firmly believe that no one should be forced to come out. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. the way that he enacted his heterosexual charade provokes me. Mm-hmm. For instance, going on The Bachelor twice, or, or being The Bachelor <laughs> and then going on The Bachelorette, then stalking and harassing yeah. the girlfriend he met on The Bachelor, going so far as to put a tracker on her car, presumably because he was so freaked out at the possibility of losing his beard or having to confront who he was, that he resorted to abusive measures to keep up that charade. You know, she didn't ask for any of this. And it strikes me that he didn't have to use all these women as sort of pawns in his career arc and now monetizable story arc. He's getting a Netflix show. You know, he, he basically came out to promote this new Netflix show about starting his life as a gay man. Apparently another Mm -hmm. gay guy will co-star as his guide to gay life. (laughs) Oh, is it Lord. is it Brian Louder? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only hell, I would watch no. that. At this point, <laughs> you know, it it feels in the same vein to me as Jonathan Van Ness coming out as non-binary to promote their line of gender-neutral nail polish, as if non-binary yeah. mm-hmm. people were being held back from wearing nail polish because it was <laughs> too gendered. Um, <laughs> see also Janelle Monet waiting to come out until the promo tour for her album. 
Colton mm. Underwood is in another category. You know, I feel a little more kindly toward those two other celebrities I mentioned. But yeah. anytime somebody uses their coming out as a way to promote a product, and specifically Colton Underwood having used other people and women in abusive ways in order to yeah. get to where he is and now getting rewarded for it with a Netflix show really provokes me. The, the fair, other yeah. provocation I want to share is a response to the coming out. I'm just going to spend the whole episode on this. I hope that's okay. So Dan Levy, star of Shit's Creek, you know, gay about town, tweeted, mm-hmm. so happy for Colton Underwood. His courage will undoubtedly save lives today. Now, this is really on vogue right now to say that such and such a thing will cost people their lives or save people's lives. And sometimes it really will, especially when we're talking about, you know, politics and policy. I think that that's a fair way to talk about a lot of the things going on, you know, especially when there are all these bills targeting trans kids in state legislatures. I think sometimes people coming out will save lives. For example, seeing visible, successful trans people living happy lives could contribute Mm. to an environment in which the lives of trans kids are saved. But I think it really does a disservice to the concept of saving lives when we bandy it about so freely, this idea that, you know, one more white cisgender gay man coming out on TV could really change the landscape for LGBT life so dramatically that, you know, somebody who might have died by suicide actually does not. I can pretty confidently say that that Colton Underwood coming out will not save lives. And I think Colton is the one who benefits from his coming out. And that's great. He has the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of hotties. I'm happy for him. And I'm glad Mm. that he is, you know, uh, finding his truth and certainly putting an end to the way that he used other people to hide who he was, which he didn't have to do. But to pretend that he is, you know, somehow uniquely courageous or that him getting this gay Netflix show and coming out so that he can date people is going to save people's lives feels a little disingenuous to me and untrue. That's fair. I think I think actually we're like weirdly in agreement, even though Brian is trying to make us get into a fight. (laughs) Um, Because I actually I didn't really know any, I don't like I said I don't know anything about him and I didn't mm-hmm. know that particular context that this was sort of like all a sort of television promotion but my fundamental feeling remains the same that like the experience of existing inside of the closet was so is so damaging that it yeah. made him do these things that are so indefensible it's just so sad you just I just look at him and I it feel is so sad. sad it is sad you know it and is sad. so you know Good for him for doing it on television. Dan Levy is obviously ridiculous, and it's not going to really save anyone's life. But I also think that that shouldn't, like, and this is not what you're saying, Christina, but, like, that's not the benchmark for these yeah. kinds of things either. You know, it's like, it's good. It's good. Like, people need to see it. And unfortunately, it matters more when it's done by a telegenic meathead <laughs> with perfect teeth. You know? <laughs> and if this does anything to sort of destabilize the hetero supremacist ideology of the bachelor mm. that will save lives <laughs> yeah. or that will be a good thing yeah you know it just it, it it pleases me to see that franchise have to deal with this unexpected twist mm-hmm. but you know mm-hmm. i guess i'm truly if i really get down to it i'm truly provoked by you know netflix for rewarding 
this man for coming out in such a yeah, way when more, so many other people have been out under much more dangerous yeah dangerous and strenuous difficult. circumstances <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and don't get a freaking netflix show about it but you know good for colton <laughs> yeah, welcome to I the just, family yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to get in the middle of this, <laughs> this uh, because it's, it's knock really down intense. drag out fight between yeah. me and mom, mom and dad mom and dad are fighting but <laughs> but i did want to shout out our producer daniel schrader's piece about this which i was very clarifying as a non batch i know nothing about the bachelor or this person either um we'll put it on the show page but he wrote a really wonderful sort of explanation of what it was like to go back and watch this guy's season again and really see how as Ramon put it like the closet just distorts and like fucks people up mm-hmm. yeah um I, I really do think that that is that is the generous sort of way to look at what happened yeah um and it's 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 sort of it's just harrowing it sounds like just to sort of to sort of see it through that lens yeah so um yeah welcome Colton but uh, come on outward maybe. anytime you want <laughs> Give us the call. <laughs> sure, sure. Not not at all a hostile interview. It'd be yeah. great. Um, all right. So Christina mentioned um, the sort of horrific legislative assault that we are seeing on on trans folks in our country right now, um, and my pride has to do with that. Um, you know, we talked about this last month on the show. Um, many many conservative state legislatures right now are attacking trans children in particular. Um, through these laws that are or bills, and then and some of them are now law. In fact, uh, barring them from youth sports, trying to keep them from receiving appropriate medical care, and even in Texas, they have one that is making it uh, essentially child abuse for parents of trans kids to help them with their gender identity and transition, which is just insane. So that's happening. So to keep, you know, we all have got to keep fighting this. And in addition to lobbying legislators and challenging these laws in the courts, which which we will do, the court of public opinion really does matter too. And so my pride this month is really all the trans folks who, despite the fear and rage and and grief that they must be feeling about this are still finding the energy to try to educate and persuade people mm-hmm. about the evil uh, of these laws and especially sort of the ideas and ideologies that, that underlie them. I wanted to call out just a particular piece in the New York Times from earlier this month by Professor Jules Jill Peterson, uh, and it was titled Transgender Childhood is Not a Trend. And I, I really want everyone to go read this because I think it, I think it was just excellent. Peterson works in trans history and queer theory. Um, and I'm just going to read uh, the sort of the top of this piece so you get a sense of what she's doing in it. There's a story I know of a young transgender girl from rural Wisconsin who, before the age of five, made it clear enough to her parents that she was a girl, not a boy, and they changed her name and dressed her in girls' clothes. When the time came for her to go to school, her parents arranged with school administrators for her to attend as a girl. She used the girls' bathroom and participated in the girls' 4-H club. All in all, she was treated with respect, not bullied or shunned. Maybe you can picture a girl like that today, but can you picture her in the 1930s? This girl, whom I call Val in the book I wrote on the history of transgender children, socially transitioned, went to school, and participated in extracurricular activities over 80 years ago. And she was hardly alone. In my research, I found stories of other transgender children like Val who were able to transition and go to school despite living in times when their identities weren't commonly acknowledged. They were not forced into transitioning by adults. They were certainly not transitioning because it was trendy or socially popular. 
So I'll stop there, but Professor Gil Peterson goes on to sort of dismantle this really pernicious and popular notion that transness, especially among kids, is trendy or the result of some sort of social contagion. And that's really behind a lot of these laws. That's sort of the thinking that that kids are being tricked mm-hmm. into doing this, right? And so we really need to resist that. And this piece does a great job of, of sort of articulating why and showing how historically trans kids have have sort of always existed as well. It is not new. Um, And so I just want to suggest for our readers that if they haven't seen it, they go read it. And if you've got anyone in your life that is sort of on the fence about this issue or or struggling with with the kidness of it all, the the childhood aspect uh, that you pass it along to them too. It's called Transgender Childhood is Not a Trend, and it's in the op-ed section of the New York Times. Thank you, Brian. That sounds really good. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The title of Diana Suhami's new book sort of gives you all you need to know. It's called No Modernism Without Lesbians. Here's what Suhami writes early in the book. They gravitated to Paris and each other, turned their backs on patriarchy, and created their own society. Rather than staying where they were born and struggling against censorship and outrageous denials and inequalities enforced by male legislators, they took their own power and authority and defied the stigma that conservative society tried to impose on them. Individually, each made a contribution. Collectively, they were a revolutionary force in the breakaway movement of modernism. The shock of the new the innovations in art, writing, film, and lifestyle, and the fracture from 19th century orthodoxies. Diana Suhami has written a group biography of sorts, looking at a handful of influential women. Sylvia Beach, the founder of the legendary Shakespeare and Company bookshop in Paris. Breyer, the one-named philanthropist and patron and sometime lover of the modernist poet H.D., and the writers, salonists, fabulous, rich Parisian ladies, Natalie Barney and Gertrude Stein. The argument is that it was these women, true renegades, who created the conditions for a whole new way of depicting, seeing, and thinking about the world. We're all so excited that Diana Suhami was able to join us today. Diana, welcome to Outward. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So it was really fun to tackle a serious work of nonfiction, although I should also point out that I found this to be a sort of <laughs> rollickingly entertaining mm-hmm. book. Absolutely. Sort of, you know, intellectually nutritious, but very, very readable. I think we're sort of accustomed to the notion that history is unkind to, at best, or oblivious altogether of the roles of women in the shaping of reality. Do you feel like that's an especially keen condition when we're talking about women who happen to be queer? Well, absolutely. I think although uh, male homosexuality was illegal, the weapon used against women was silence. And it's an incredibly effective weapon, of course, because if you don't even acknowledge the existence of lesbians, then then in a sense, they're not there to anyone but themselves. <laughs> when when um, Radcliffe Hall published The Well of Loneliness, a dreadful book, really, <laughs> um, 
you know, it was burned as obscene in, in the king's furnace because of its subject matter. And the only the only sort of sexy thing that happens in it is, is she writes, and that night they were not divided. <laughs> well, I think she also writes, she kissed her full on the lips, you know. Mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. as sexy as it got. So <laughs> there was censorship and denial and family expectations of, of a woman's place. When they got away, it was wonderful for them. They became who they were, you know. And they needed mm. to get away. Mm. I think Gertrude Stein said it wasn't just what Paris gave you. It was all it didn't take away, which is very significant, really, because so much was taken away from genderqueer people. One thing that I loved about this book is that it wasn't just about what these women gave to the world, you know, their patronage of James Joyce and also the work that they mm. created, you know, the the sort of familiar beats of history that you hit, but the way they spoke to each other about each other, you know, their mm-hmm. love letters to mm-hmm. each other, their, the sort of fights that they had within their community that they often put down on papers for the benefit of us generations later. Was there any bit of papers or letters that you found that felt particularly that gave you particular insight into sort of the personal lives of these women that that we so rarely get to see, especially for lesbians? Well, I've written um, quite a lot of biographies of lesbians because I'm old. And um, <laughs> I, I first started this about 35 years ago, you know. I mean, I included Natalie Barney because she's so candid about her love life, you know. She said that, that living was the first of all the arts, she said about being lesbian, people call it unnatural. All I can say is it's always come naturally to me. <laughs> you know, because they formed a community, they could be out. So they were destined, if you like, to break away. That's how I define it, this break from old ways of mm-hmm. old ways of writing, old ways of seeing, and old ways of being. And of course, to be lesbian or to be gay. You have to break away. Mm. And in fact, even though Natalie Barney didn't necessarily contribute as much to, you know, what we think of as the historically important art uh, literature of modernism, you write that she made Paris the sapphic center of the Western world. It seemed like maybe people moved there because there were people to sleep with there. You know, she performed a service (laughs) for Paris and for the movement by making it a place where lesbians, especially, you know, well-to-do lesbians who were ready to fund this artistic movement or create work in this movement, you know, they wanted to be there because there were lovers to be had. Is that, is that right? I think it's absolutely true. I mean, Natalie Barney had a, had a Friday salon. I think somebody called them the hazardous Fridays (laughs) and people went there to, you know, discuss their artistic contribution, but to find, yes, it was to pick somebody up, you know, to make, make friends and find lovers. How to meet people is always a question, isn't it, for people who aren't conforming? And she did provide that. I mean, you know, they, I think they're also sort of strawberry tarts and alcohol and little sandwiches. <laughs> and, and she had this temple of friendship and sapphic dances in the garden, you know, which which the neighbours complained about. But but Sappho figured quite large throughout the whole culture, you know, the idea of a community of women who would make their own rules 
and their own choices and, their, and follow their own desires. So there was that Greek, quite consciously, that, that link up to Grecian times, ancient, ancient Greece. Eva Palmer, you know, she sort of like cosplayed ancient Greek life. It felt like this was maybe the only historical model they had for what they wanted to create. And of course, the generation that came after them probably looked to them and said, you know, well, I want what Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas had or something. Sappho did, was their reference. I mean, Eva Palmer carried it to a rather extreme degree and went to Greece and lived, you know, um, wove her own clothes and things, you know, and really learned Greek and followed in the footsteps of Sappho insofar as her footsteps were known. But I think this fact of not having historical models, not having role models, mm. is pretty punishing. I mean, for me growing up, I didn't, there wasn't a literature, you know. Mm-hmm. So who who could they turn to? I mean, when I read The Well of Loneliness, I thought, well, if that's what being lesbian is, I might as well kill top myself now, you know. Mm-hmm. This going back that far to find role models was, was a, in a way, an, an indictment of society's intolerance and suppression. Censorship, Sylvia Beach published Ulysses. That was, Joyce couldn't find a publisher. Gage Lawrence was banned. It was, it was very intense mm-hmm. um, censorship in the States and in Britain. And and there was prohibition, of course, in the US as well. I mean, Sylvia Beach said the reason why all self-respecting writers went to Paris was because they couldn't buy Ulysses and they couldn't get a drink. (laughs) (laughs) It was patriarchal and pretty repressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're a woman and you're, you're lesbian and you you're in love with another woman and you've got this great pressure to marry a man you don't care about. It's pretty damaging. At the same time, I was really, it's sort of galvanizing to see a book document the many clever workarounds, right? The marriage between lesbians Mm. and gay men or the sort of chaste marriages between lesbians and straight men that were sort of, uh, had to do with money. First of all, it just sort of underscores how marriage has sort Mm -hmm. of always Mm -hmm. historically Mm -hmm. been about money. Mm And second of all, it kind of challenged the idea, precisely what you're saying, Diana, that like the well of loneliness was shocking and transgressive, but really depicted this lesbian experience as kind of sad Mm -hmm. and agonized. But the women you're writing about, there's a lot of sadness for sure, but there's also a lot of like joy. And as Christina pointed out, there's a lot of sex. Like Mm -hmm. Natalie Barney, the chapter on Natalie Barney I felt like I was dizzy. I was like, wait a minute. She, she slept with this woman, and then this woman slept with this woman, and then Natalie slept with her also. And then the three of them got into a fight, and they all slept with this fourth woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really sort of like this incredible litany of a very real life. And right. it's so different to me than the way that I think the present always thinks about the past, which is a little mm-hmm. condescending and mm-hmm. a little chaste and a little like that it was all sort of suffering and there was never any sort of color to it. I think that's right. I mean, if anybody, if I, I didn't, I couldn't totally approve of Natalie Barney. I mean, she said she once had 18 assignations in one night. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, exhausting. That's, 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 that's exhausting. You can't. Yeah. 
<laughs> what what how long was the night or how short <laughs> but but nonetheless she does turn these expectations on her and she 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 had her last love affair when she was 80 mm-hmm. I mean, okay. she met this woman on a park bench in nice well i've just turned 80 so i think i'll try sitting on <laughs> try sitting on park benches you know. <laughs> Um, so she was a goer, and all these, and she did confound all these, all these preconceptions of how women should behave, you know. Mm-hmm. So, which is always refreshing, isn't it? You also write that when Briar died, this incredibly important, you know, figure in the scene, and also a person with a very active, you know, inner life sense of herself. You write that the obituary that ran read as if a kindly grandmother had died. You know, it gave no sense of how important she was, how, you know, cultured she was, all that she accomplished in her life. Do you see your book as a corrective to these sorts of incomplete memories? If if it does that, then good. You know, I, I was, I, I felt sort of, cross when I unearthed that that um, obituary in the New York Times it was in fact mm-hmm. I mean they called her Mrs. Briar you know mm-hmm. um it was it, it was it was insulting um and said that she was she was the friend of Hilda Doolittle and had adopted her daughter I mean it faced nothing of what Briar had done you know and in some ways, this this use of it's like putting a pencil through someone's life. Mm. It's awful, um, but it happens, doesn't it? From from people who don't want to accept what they don't want to hear, who won't accept what they don't want to hear, or who mm-hmm. just don't mm-hmm. have the knowledge. I mean, I wonder who wrote that obituary and what they actually knew of her life, or and what was possible to know at the time. Yes, it was stupid because there would be no research, but there was also imposing an idea of what constitutes a, a decent life, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. And if it had her life, had it been had it been revealed that she made two lavender cover-up marriages in order to secure her inheritance, Hilda Doolittle said of her, you know, she loves me so madly, it's terrible. No man has ever loved me like that. I mean, they're not going to print that, mm-hmm. are they? Mm, no. Speaking of Briar, first of all, I will admit that I had never heard of her. I did mm. not know this history, and it was such an extraordinary thing to read about. But one of the things that really caught my attention or made me think was that you're arguing, essentially, that this woman who just was born into profound wealth, and again, I'm, I'm saying woman, and as Christina sort of points out, like that's not necessarily the way that Briar spoke of herself, but... I'll just use the language of that time. So Briar was just the daughter of an extraordinarily wealthy person who directed that money into subsidizing small magazines, into producing films, into paying James Joyce a stipend so that he could go off and be the precious genius that he was. (laughs) You know, she wasn't like engaged in the making of anything that we now understand as seminal or significant. But... I'm curious to hear you sort of talk about why she was important nonetheless, like why the role of the patron is worth thinking about and worth remembering. And when you think about sort of what that New York Times obituary ought to have said and ought to have credited her with having done in her life. Yes, I started off wanting to write a biography of Briar, but you know, it's this thing about publishers 
if they, they don't want biographies of people they haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how do people they haven't heard of ever get heard of? You know, well, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have another one of, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh and Winston Churchill and, you know, I mean, how many, or Diana, Princess of Wales, our side. But if they haven't heard of them, they don't want them. And that it was at that point that I decided to do it this way, you know, in but she was an amazing philanthropist. And, you know, with that, lav- she, she did a lavender cover-up marriage with Robert McCallum. She founded Contact Editions for the, f- they published for the first time Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein. It was extraordinary, her input and, and her, uh, her contribution. Because if things aren't published, and and of course they they made very they made no money, but if things aren't published, how do you ever hear of anyone? You know, she's totally supported Hilda Doolittle. You know, she was an an analysand of Freud. She she helped Freud get out of Austria. You know, and 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 a whole lot of Jewish um, psychoanalysts to get them to freedom. She was very tuned in to what was happening everywhere. And she did this without fuss or without, with tremendous grace. I mean, she was a true philanthropist. And sometimes, you know, the name, the name of the person who's written something is, is what's remembered, but not how it is that they come to be published and known. And it was Breyer who was behind this. I mean, she financed Sylvia Beach and Shakespeare and Company when it wasn't, mm-hmm. when it wasn't functioning, you know. I've read a lot of your biographies of lesbians. I hope everyone is aware of Gluck, which is magnificent. But this is the first time that you have had the word lesbian in a title. And I'm wondering, you know, is it about the time we're living in? Is it about you? Is it about something that's happened in publishing? Does that feel significant to you as it does to me? Oh, oh, absolutely. It's really mm. interesting that you do that one. Because, I mean, you you mentioned Gluck, which is my first biography, which was 35 years ago, and and I was very, if I said the word lesbian, you know, you didn't use the word unless you wanted your mother to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> you know. And you certainly didn't expect the mainstream publisher to, to, to publish you. And then you put that picture but on the cover this, and everybody knew. <laughs> but <laughs> then you put the picture and people think, why is she, where did she get that hat? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, why, and why is she wearing a tie? But the publisher this time, they jumped at the word lesbian. Hmm. They wanted it there. It sort of amused me how much they wanted it there. And I'm not, you know, how much is it for, and that's how much things have changed in the in the past 30 years. I mean, so many things have got worse, but at least transparency and acknowledgement and gay rights have got better in some countries, but it's never arrived, you know. But the fact that the publisher wanted it, I thought that was hugely significant. And they wanted that title. I mean, I began sort of with a kind of rather muddily titled um, modernism wouldn't have happened without lesbians, you know. <laughs> um, they, don't, they, they, they kind of mull it over and have meetings and come up with no modernism without lesbians. And I, I was all right with it. It's not, you know, but that's, that's you can actually say the word without an apology. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I really liked about, the, uh, that I hope came over in, the, in this book is, you know, this thing of pleading for acceptance, which has gone on for so long in my lifetime, you know, please give us our rights. 
please acknowledge me, please accept who I am. They weren't doing that. They were saying, look who I am, look what I've achieved, mm. you know, um, catch up with me. So I hoped that it was turning things on their head a bit, you know, this idea that you don't have to ask for acceptance. It's a kindergarten, you know, and it, the kindergarten of, of talking about your community or, you know, I mean, it's turn it around and talk about the achievement and, mm. um, and, and what's deserved and, and the understanding of people, you know. Yes, I mean, yes, use of the word, how, how overdue is it? So later in the show, we're actually going to be talking about the recent spate of lesbian period dramas, some of which you may have seen or not. Mm. Um, but the thing, one of the things we're talking about sort of in them in total is that the desire there is shown to be sort of furtive and halting and, and just sort of generally sort of terrifying. Um, and so watching those this week while also reading your book, you see that these women had, once they found love, had very little trepidation about sort of embracing it and getting on with their lives. I wondered if you had any thoughts about where this notion of lesbian timidity uh, that, that we see in all of these, uh, so many of these films is coming from, and if that's something that you maybe were working against in, in, in telling these particular stories. Well, I was t totally working against it, and I think it comes from, I mean, very few of us want to say things that people don't want to hear. Um, it's always difficult to say something that people don't want to hear, you know, so people talk about coming out and what they're parents' reaction was. And so often it's negative. So often. And if if who you are is met with condemnation, then I think it leads, it feeds into that. Um, at best you're apologetic or worst you're or worst you're in denial or furtive, mm. you know. Um, you know, the words out and proud or they're the words, but the living of it, it, it takes some courage and liberation, doesn't it, really? And, and, and I think another, another thing that has changed in my lifetime is that not just that you can have lesbian on the title, but there's acceptance. You know, there's a much wider acceptance, a much mm -hmm. greater freedom. So it does work two ways. You know, it's not just it's other people accepting and benefiting and liking and embracing diversity. It's, it's, a it's a challenge of our societies, isn't it? Diana Suhami is the author of several works of nonfiction, among them biographies of Gertrude Stein, Radcliffe Hall, and Greta Garbo. Her most recent book, which we've been discussing today, is called No Modernism Without Lesbians. It's available now. Diana, thank you so much. It was such a great pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. As Brian mentioned on the top of the show, 
It's all lesbians all the time here on Outward this month. It's my time to shine. (laughs) And joining us for this segment is the inimitable June Thomas. Thank you for joining us, June. Thank you for having me. So for our second topic, we are asking, what's the deal with all these lesbian period dramas? Why does it seem like every movie featuring two women in lust takes place before the advent of the telephone? (laughs) We'd already planned on doing this segment when, just a couple weeks ago, Saturday Night Live ran a sketch about this exact phenomenon. Try to scoop us. (laughs) (laughs) Starring two straight actresses who dare not to wear makeup. Twelve lines of dialogue, two and a half hour runtime. Put the rocks in the basket. The gray ones are best. I'm scared of water. This is why I pick rocks alone. Featuring Academy Award winning glance choreography. And Best Supporting Actress nominee, The Wind. So this sketch was pretty much a direct hit on Ammonite, which came out in November. It's about an ornery lesbian who makes her living unearthing fossils, I think. She's played by Kate Winslet. She then becomes acquainted with a married visitor, married to a man, uh, who has a weak constitution. That woman is Saoirse Ronan. She's prescribed sea air for her melancholy. Mm-hmm. But there's an even more recent film in this subgenre, The World to Come, which takes place in rural New York in the mid-1800s. There are two couples who are farming and raising livestock and generally trying to eke out a life on the frontier. The women fall in love. Drama ensues. There's also the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic, uh, Celine Siama's critical darling, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a French film set in, it's not exactly clear, but probably the late 1700s. That film stars Adele Hanel and Noemi Merlant. The former plays a strong-willed society lady engaged to a man she's never met. The latter plays a woman hired to paint her portrait to send to the man so he can see who he's marrying. Mm-hmm. So for the purposes of this podcast, we can't get into all the lesbian period dramas out there. I can think of at least two or three more just in the past couple of years. Um, but we will throw in 2015's Carol, starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, just because it is an enduring favorite among a lot of lesbians, myself not really included. Ooh. But it's also Ooh. very artfully embedded in its specific time period, which is the early 1950s. So although, you know, Carol and Therese had running water, it made the cut for the purposes of this segment. (laughs) We should clarify, not all these characters are lesbians per se. Some of them seem like they could be bi. Obviously, lesbian was not really an accepted identity marker during all of these time periods. Um, But we will be using it as shorthand here just because it's easier to say over and over again than women loving women. The first question I have for you guys, why can't lesbians get a little electricity up in here? (laughs) AKA, why are all these lesbian films, many of which have been critically acclaimed uh, in the past couple of years, why are they all set so far in the past? I have sort of two answers to this. I think, I think, or two thoughts about it. I don't don't think we have an answer, but um, the, the generous one is that you know, queer people do have a desire to sort of situate ourselves in history. I think there's been this 
a little bit of a misreading of like queer theory, which says that like queer people didn't exist until, you know, the turn of the 20th century, um, which is, which is not quite accurate, but I think that's an idea that's out there. There's a little bit of a pushback and a desire to be like, no, we've always been here. And that there's maybe some, some value to sort of asserting that, that presence. My other feeling though, is that, that I sort of can't help, but get this, the sense that there's something in, infantilizing about it too. All of these films have are sort of defined by like an uncertainty and a furtiveness and a stumbling and nobody really knows what's going on. And they're within these, within these sort of historical constraints as well, of course. And I wonder if that version of, of lesbianism or of, of female woman, woman desire is more palatable than a more modern lesbianism, which would be self-possessed, certain, we know what we are, here's what we're doing, right? I, I wonder if if producers or directors or whoever sort of see that that more furtive space as somehow more appealing when they think about what woman on woman, when they think, of, yeah, right, when they think about what same-sex desire among women uh, looks like, right? Um, so those, those are my two thoughts. I don't know if those resonate. Brian, I agree with you completely about those two points, but I want to take that a little bit further. Let's not be cynical about this. You're right. Um, there's desire for movies that make people cry, and there's a lot of tragedy in those oldie-timey women falling in love. And there aren't many documented stories of lesbians in history. That's why mm-hmm. we keep going on about Sappho, you know. <laughs> Uh, 2,600 years ago before there was written language, you know. And from, who, and from whom we only have like three seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? like, it's like there's like nothing. Which yeah. are what people remember. So they're probably wrong anyway. But anyway, another good faith reason. I know that some very right on actresses want to make different kinds of movies that have different kinds of roles for women. So like Rachel Weisz, who effectively made disobedience happen. She wants to make movies that have really good roles for women and that aren't, you know, that follow the Bechdel test or pass the Bechdel test effectively, and so they often mm. are lesbian movies, even though she's not a lesbian. But here's the thing that I, the place that I keep stumbling is, why aren't we making movies about contemporary lesbians? And could it be that filmmakers cannot sell a story with with actual lesbians who look like lesbians, some of whom look like Rachel Weisz, and some of whom I can't even give an example because there aren't any example mm-hmm. of kind like of masculine. Leah Delaria. Leah Delaria. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it, with every day that passes, I can't believe uh, what a service Orange is the New Black did because it did show all kinds of women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's, a, that's really, you know, for all of the good faith explanations, there's that pretty fucking depressing one that I think is, mm-hmm. is really accurate. That first thing makes me think about Filmmakers wanting to make a period piece, a period drama, but are confronting either higher standards for sexual politics that we have now for films, especially, you know, post Me Too, and or the feeling that, well, we don't know a lot about what women's lives were like back then, or what we do know is really heavily confined to the domestic sphere, which, by the way, is not confronted or departed from in these films, but is a lot more complicated when it's, well, you know, the man has his life and the woman has her, like, barely a life because we don't know that much or it's all about child rearing and making food or, you know, laying on a fainting couch for the rich ones. (laughs) And here's this love story between them. It just feels boring, whereas these films can feel a little bit more boundary-pushing even when they don't really depart at all from the narratives that we already know. 
I think that part of the complication is actually less to do with depictions of queerness and more to do with uh, a cultural over-reliance on fictions of history. If you you think about um, a movie like Green Book, that kind of depiction of a period of history feels prestigious to us in the cultural context of today. It also flatters the contemporary audience by showing you a Mm. warped reality and Mm. allowing you to condescend to it. So we can watch Green Book and feel great about how comparatively enlightened we are as a society now. And that's, I think that's always been part of the pleasure of the historical text and the people who control what movies do have a sense that if you put an actress like Kate Winslet, who's stunningly beautiful, stuff her into a period costume, don't do her brows to suggest that she's somehow that makes her butch, and <laughs> yeah. like set, <laughs> right. set her off with like a beautiful young hottie like Saoirse Ronan, then you'll just sort of like waltz to the Oscars. You know, it's like that's that's like all you need. And in some ways, I don't think that's wrong. I do think there is a way that a lot of texts are hollow in precisely that way. That speaks to why I feel like it's a little bit unfair to fully lump Portrait of a Lady on Fire in with the other ones because it was written and directed by a queer woman who, by the way, has made other films with Adele Hanel and used to be romantically involved with her. Um, But I I almost feel like if you watch that movie and Ammonite next to each other, as clearly the SNL writers did, you see so many similarities that you aren't able to appreciate the subtle differences that Portrait of a Lady on Fire brings to the form. One thing a lot of these films share in common that Portrait of a Lady on Fire doesn't is it's got a different lens on the function of reproduction, which in the past, you know, even more so than today, this was the woman's sphere, you know, having children and taking care of children. In Carol, The World to Come, and Ammonite, the women are all either pining after a child that they might lose because they're gay, they've had a miscarriage, or they have a child who died. In Portrait of a Lady on Fire, reproduction is still broached, but it's in the context of abortion and not even, you know, related to the two main characters. Other than that, they help facilitate the abortion. It also, that film had a lot to say about the gaze of the artist, which seemed to me like a kind of critique of some of these other films directed by men who, you know, the entire film is sexual tension until you get to an incredibly intense sex scene that doesn't feel true to lesbian life. How did they learn to do that stuff? I'm like, were people sitting on each other's faces in like 1830? And knew that you should lean on the wall because that (laughs) truly is next level. Like, it takes a lot to figure that out. They magically don't have any body hair? That's kind of, that's another thing that I loved about Celine Sciamma's film is they had body hair and there was the only real Mm -hmm. sex scene which usually I would critique a queer film for not having a good sex scene, but in this one, they just sort of wink to it with a close-up of, you know, one of them putting an ointment under the other one's armpit, which kind of looks like she's a sex act, which, and it can be a sex act, you know, but when you, then you realize, oh, that she's actually just touching her armpit. Christina, can I draw you? (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot to say about costuming and about our perception of women from the past as sort of swathed in fabric and sort of floating about these places 
It's funny because in in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, they're floating about a kind of grand home, but in the world to come, it's kind of a mean domestic experience, like a log mm-hmm. cabin. Yet they're still wearing these sort of column dresses. Yeah. You can barely see their feet, and they look really like they're about to pose for John Singer Sargent. <laughs> I find it hard to believe <laughs> that this is accurate. I just have trouble accepting like a pioneer wife dress like she was going to sit for a society portrait. Again, I think it's like, this is what historical fiction can do, is represent the past in this condescending way, and at the same time capture something that's so fundamental to our contemporary attitude that we wish had been true of the past. We wish that women were always beautiful and beautifully dressed and precious and lovely, I don't know if that reality really holds up. And to June's point about the lack of masculine of center lesbians in any of these pieces. I mean, Mm -hmm. in Suhami's book, we read that monocles were sort of like the way that lesbians um, communicated to each other, like who they were and what their desires were. Where are all the films about lesbians in monocles? I mean, Gentleman (laughs) Jack, which is another recent um, entry. It was actually a TV show had a masculine of center lesbian at the center of it. And that's one thing I loved about it. They also had a sex scene where she literally like wiped her fingers on the bed sheet after they had sex. And I was like, wow, that was like more like evocative to me than, you know, watching Saoirse Ronan uh-huh. climb on Kate Winslet's face. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, there this, this question of realism and what we take as real is really interesting. We're very prepared to like engage with the tragedy of it because let's be, you know, it, it was tragic. There was there was a complete lack of role models. There was a, le- a complete lack of options. It's not, I mean, it's silly to talk about role models. It's about options. In Ammonite, you know, Kate Winslet's character is, you know, very much somebody who is, is, is breaking away and doing things that are beyond what really is the realm of women at the same time there are still so few options. There's still so much she can't do. And I think that's one of the great things about Portrait of a Lady on Fire is that they know what's possible and what's not possible. I know exactly what you mean about that flattering, Roman. There's both that flattering of, oh, things are better now. There's so many more options now. But it's also, there was something about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, like the most flattering part about it was that they didn't make us sit through that oh I would love to go with you and I would love to make a life with you but that's not possible like they look at each other and they know they know what's possible and what's not possible and maybe you know to give Ammonite a little bit more credit than I really want to even though I want to acknowledge it was directed by a gay man he's not like some straight person who's you know just coming and he's from the north so obviously (laughs) you gotta give him some points for that (laughs) you know that Saoirse Ronan's character who maybe has that yearning for a woman she doesn't understand anything about, you know, you can't put her in a cage. There, it just isn't an option. There's no way that could work out. Mm-hmm. It's just something that I'm willing to believe because historically yeah. it feels right. Yeah, June, you just explained to me why I, I had written down something to the effect of like the that the, the sad ending of Portrait of a Lady on Fire felt more earned to me than any of the rest of these these films. And I think it's because it was so frank, exactly, about what was going to be possible anyway. There's pain in that and sort of the running up against it, but it has no sort of imported idea of like, well, what we could go make, like, no, that, that, that was not, that they knew that wasn't a possibility. And so it didn't, it, you didn't feel faked out sort of by it at all. So I think, I think you actually just sort of articulated why that movie makes a lot more sense to me than the other ones. The fact that that movie didn't have any 
men really in it that, you know, the the man who was sort of responsible ostensibly for them not being able to be together because he was engaged to be married to one of them never appears. Whereas no. the sort of tragedy that is like the current running through a lot of these films in a, in a lot of ways, it has to do with a man, you know, these films make life with men look terrible and life with women look idyllic by comparison, you know, and in a condescending way a little bit, like, you know, I'm a homo supremacist definitely, but it feels (laughs) very patronizing and flattening to me to see like a relationship between two women depicted as just like an alternative to an abusive man. And in the same way, you know, we romanticize these sort of eras of, you know, there were no screens, you know, we wrote letters to each other, we had to take a boat to get to each other, you know, subsistence farming, although a world to come does not make that look fun. And it strikes me that the the world that these movies present I think actually accurately is of a temporary world. It's not the real world. It's a temporary moment where these women get to live out their true selves. And it might just be, you know, in a night of passion. It might be in a kind of a, a what did you call it earlier? Glance choreography, you know, <laughs> just, just kind of yeah. making eye contact across a crowded room. And, you know, the fact is there, w- there wasn't an opportunity to, you know, go even to the big city and, you know, have a lesbian life or to have lesbian politics or to even know what that word was. Mm-hmm. That's just fact. That wasn't a real thing at that time. Like, it's pleasant to see that at least we're seeing portrayals of these people and, and of this particular connection, but it's always temporary. And, and yeah, you're so right about, like, the problem with the world to come. Like, when I when the credits rolled at the end and I saw so many men involved, I thought, oh, yeah, they think that women choose to love other women because men are so awful. It's got nothing to do with men. Men are the last thing it has anything to do with. It's that completely irrelevant. Yeah, the, there is that that feeling of, like, why did you bring that in for? Yeah. And yeah. so this is one of my problems with Carol, because one thing I like about it is that it does take place seemingly within a society where lesbians exist and where, you know, people are able to identify that way. They know other people who are that way. They're not just sort of like two isolated women who happen to fall into each other's arms. There's a little more self-knowledge involved and also self-questioning. But the homophobia, in large part enacted by Carol's terrible husband, who is abusive and wants to take her child away from her, that's basically yeah. the whole plot of the movie. But, you know, it's, it's also real. Like, you it know, is, Carol, I know. Yeah, you know, and, and Carol was based on, I mean, obviously Patricia Highsmith, for all, for being a hideous person, like, was part of that culture. And it's based on two women you know, two relationships that she had and real like Like, it's too bad that that's what we see, but it is also mm-hmm. real. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. I want it both ways. You know, I, I want <laughs> the film to not have, like, men and homophobia be at the center of it, but I also don't want to have this, like, imaginary idyllic world where, like, two women just get to be together, divorced from whatever's happening in the rest of society. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, as much as we can look at, like, the language or the notion of identity as a contemporary invention, desire is not a contemporary invention. (laughs) So it's still more condescending to think that a woman living in the 19th century would have had no way of understanding 
what it was she was feeling. Mm -hmm. Because I think that you do have a way of comprehending, even when you're young and closeted, there is a way in which, oh yeah, this all makes sense to me. It all computes. You simply can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is maybe, maybe that's very difficult to dramatize on the screen. But when you see in the world to come, these two housewives kind of like... (sighs) I mean, it's so, it's, I'm laughing, which is not generous of me, but it is truly ridiculous the way that their sort of courtship plays <laughs> out. At the same time, I think I remember, and I think we probably all remember, a uh, language of desire that was we were unable to articulate. And I don't yeah, know how you yeah. capture that on screen, but like, mm-hmm. I remember like the 15 year old self, like one of the characters in this movie, in one of these movies actually says like all lovers feel like they've invented something. So yeah. I think that's in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I think it's true, but I also don't think it's a surprise. Or I desire, I desire a deep and abiding friendship. Right. And like, yeah. there, there's a, con- there's a con that includes hotness <laughs> <laughs> to add to your condescension point, which I think is so smart. There's a condescension in imagining that our current model of identity, LGBTQ, is is sort of the teleological, like the ideal yeah. endpoint, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That like we look back on these moments and say, oh, but if only they could have, you know, had that word or had this context. When in fact, maybe they were, maybe there were people who were f- happy, fine, moderately happy. I don't know, like living in that that sort of system and structure that is that was more you know not sort of less vocabulary but perhaps richer in certain ways um in the language of friendship i don't know but it's making it's making me sort of feel that there's yeah that there's a condescension and and being like again like that that our our moment is is the sort of ideal moment for yeah. this um may, maybe maybe not i don't you know we don't know actually yeah one of the things too that strikes me that's that i've come to realize as we're speaking is we are not among them, I suspect, but there are people who find it really sexy to see people like finding a way to act out desire in a forbidden kind of setting. It's absolutely not the case for me, but I think there are people who, for example, find the closet really sexy. There are people mm-hmm. who find that hidden world, that Clear notion people? of a hidden world. Yeah, I, th- I think there are. I think there yeah, are gay people sure who, who, yeah. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a whole thing of like gay guys wanting to go back to like cruising in the '70s, yeah. right? Or, or earlier, yeah. where it's all, where it's all secret and yeah. sort of furtive. Yeah, no, you're right, June. That's a really good point. All right, this is almost all the time we have for this topic. I could talk for another three hours about it, um, <laughs> which is about as long as a world to come felt. Um, (laughs) Outward listeners, I would absolutely love to hear what you thought of any of these films or what period drama or what period of time you'd like to see a lesbian drama about. (laughs) You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, that's about it for this month. But before we go, let's hear updates to the gay agenda. Brian, what are you recommending this month? So I am recommending a really incredible four-part documentary uh, on HBO Max, because where else? There is no (laughs) other television anymore, uh, called The Lady and the Dale. Um, Now, this came out back in January, I think the very end of January. So I'm a little, I got finishing it a little late. But I also think it kind of went under the radar. I don't think I, I read a lot about it. Full disclosure, I'm friendly with one of the directors, but I would recommend this uh, absolutely anyway. Um, It's the story of Elizabeth Carmichael, who, as a Vulture review helpfully put it, was an auto industry pioneer and a criminal, a loving mother and a deadbeat parent, a savvy entrepreneur and a con artist. She was also a trans woman uh, living in the 70s. And that fact, because she's outed eventually by a very creepy journalist who, if you watch the show you will learn has a very interesting tie to a current creepy journalist that I don't want to spoil, became a huge part of her downfall. So the trans thing became very splashy and was part of sort of what happened to her. The show is centered around the Dale, which is this three-wheel, like highly fuel-efficient prototype car that she claimed she could manufacture and produce and it would upset the auto industry in the U.S. She, spoiler alert, fails to do this. But it's also a portrait of a really unique family and also this document of queer history that I just don't think we know. I I had never heard of this person before. And it's also just beautifully done. It's uh, got a lot of animation in it due to a lack of archival video footage. So it's it's just gorgeous. But highly recommended if you're looking for a a little documentary moment, uh, The Lady and the Dale on HBO Max. Wow, that sounds fascinating. That sounds amazing, yeah. Ruman, what have you brought us? Well, you know, I had lesbians on the brain this month, and especially lesbians and their relationship to art. So I wanted to recommend there's a retrospective at the Whitney Museum currently of the painter Julie Maretu. Julie is a 50-year-old American painter. She's an extraordinary, extraordinary artist. Her work is really hard to explain. It's um, these beautiful, large-scale, painterly architectural abstractions. And she showed up in an issue of T Magazine that's about friendships. And there's a very short interview between Julie and her former partner, Jessica Rankin. Um, and they talk about their, that though they are no longer romantically together, they have this sort of deep and profound working friendship. And she says this thing in this interview, she says, being queer, you're constantly inventing everything, which really made me think of Diana Suhami's book. And it really made me think of the attraction of artistic life for queer people and queer sensibility. I know that people are still feeling really cautious about going out to museums and other places, but I will say that most museums feel like they're big and grand enough that they're somewhat safer to be in with crowds that are tightly controlled and you keep your mask on, you know, your mask doesn't cover your eyes. So you can still go and have an experience of art. And I think Julie is a really fascinating painter. And so she has a show. It's at the Whitney Museum of American Art. It's up there until August, I think. Highly recommend. Um, June Thomas is going Mm -hmm. to give us 
what her addition to the gay agenda. June, what do you have for us this month? I must say that after Brian mentioned The Lady and the Dale, I have to just give a quick shout out to a really weirdly interesting audiobook that I listened to last week. It's called Who's Your Daddy? That's Who's Your, as mm. in Indiana, H-O-O-S-I-E-R. <laughs> and it's like I a basic it. lesbian romance, but... There are these kind of pro-union speeches put in from time to time because it's set in a in an auto plant and the romance yeah. is between a, a lesbian who works on the line and a, a UAW organizer. Oh, that's so hot. It's really interesting and strange and, and I, I loved it. It's by Anne McMahon and Salem West. And I love to imagine if maybe one of them wrote, because it's not very well integrated, so if one of them wrote the romance and one of them wrote the union propaganda. <laughs> Um, But if I can squeeze in, since I've squeezed myself in, I'm going to squeeze in a second book. I'm just so happy that uh, the writer Barbara Wilson, she was, I think, the first or one of the very first writers of lesbian mysteries, which were a popular genre in the 80s into the 90s and then kind of disappeared, you know, not just with lesbian characters, but set in lesbian milieu. Uh, she herself is a is a translator, and she has two series, but one is with this translator, Cassandra Riley, who travels the world translating. And she's back after uh, more than a decade away. There's a new book called Not the Real Jupiter, and it's just so nice to have them back, but also to have these considerations of translation and getting gold and, you know, lesbian, the way that lesbians move through the world and also kind of deal with authority. It's a it's a good mystery, but it's also just a really it's just lovely to be back in that setting, set in the Pacific Northwest as well as some other parts of the world. Anyway, it's I really recommend it. Thank you, June. I'm recommending a book too. There's a photo book that was first published in 1979 called Eye to Eye Portraits of Lesbians by the legendary photographer Joan E. Byron, known often as Jeb. Uh, The book was out of print for a long time and was just reissued. It was, if I'm not mistaken, the first book of photos of lesbians that was labeled as such. And it's a just really triumphant, but also banal look at queer life at the time. It portrays lesbians, I think, pretty revolutionarily for the time as happy, loving, working, living in a way that's not, you know, sexualized through a male lens or threatening, on the other hand. So I'd seen her photos before. I'd seen Jeb's photos. It felt for a while like, you know, every time I would see a black and white portrait of lesbians in their element from that era, it was her photo. And I'm so happy to be able to purchase the book now. And while I was looking through it, I listened to a podcast that I'm also going to recommend uh, in this segment. June Thomas, the one and only, interviewed Jeb on the Slate (laughs) podcast, Working, which Ruman also co-hosts. So it's not an explicitly gay podcast, but it is very, very gay. (laughs) It's pretty gay. Super gay. Um, (laughs) And it was just such a treat to be able to listen to her explain the struggles that she endured to get this book to print at the time um, while reading the book, you know, she like held out to get her photos printed on good paper. She didn't want it on newsprint, which was the only way that she had seen her photos before. Um, She camped out outside the printer because she couldn't afford to stop the press while she waited to have the proofs mailed to her. She's 76 now, and she spoke about how much it meant to her to be alive to see her work 
and her contributions to queer culture being appreciated and rediscovered at this moment. It's just such a wonderful interview. Again, that's on Working, and the book is called Eye to Eye. All right. That is about all the time we have for the show and for lesbians. Well, we have more time for lesbians uh, all the <laughs> time. But for the, sh- for the show today, we, we are out of time. Please send us feedback and topic ideas to outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter. We're at Slate Outward. Our producer is Margaret Kelly. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the ever-benevolent briar to our messy, drunken, kind of awful, but I guess somewhat brilliant Joyce. (laughs) If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Get them to rate and review the show so others can join in on the fun. Outward will be back in your feeds on May 19th. Goodbye, my friends. Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Stay gay. Stay gay. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.